Welcome to the Boomer Woman's Podcast. I'm your host, Agnes Knowles. Boomer. Some people don't like the term, but I think, like many other words, it's all in how you say it. My umbrella business is Boom with a Bang, and I think we should keep that in mind as much as possible. We Boomer women don't have a lot of role models as we traverse this chapter. So the goal of this podcast is to introduce you to guests who might incentivize, encourage, teach you to embrace your wisdom, our wisdom. With this incarnation of the Boomer Woman's Podcast, I'm interviewing people who have a message of interest for our demographic. If you want to hear about or learn about something specific, let me know and I'll find someone who understands us to talk about it. There's a contact page at boomwithabang.com. If you want to be a guest on podcast or know someone who would be a great guest, message me. Finally, this show is all about conversation. We women know its value, we know how to do it, and we must perpetuate the art form. So let's get started with today's show. Welcome to the Boomer Woman's Podcast. I'm your host, Agnes Knowles. History. Certainly wasn't my favorite favorite subject in school. As I've gotten older, though, I realized that was more to do with the curriculum and or the teachers. It wasn't that history is or ever has been boring. Many of you know I'm a fan of talk radio. And the older I get, the more I notice the young reporters catastrophizing over an issue and myself thinking, yeah, well, we had something similar 20 years ago and 35 years ago and 48 years ago and that's just in my lifetime if I had a better grasp on history I could probably take you further back my guest today is an historian and I'm looking forward to her views on societal views on history and if you're thinking that you're close enough to being history yourself so you don't need to pay attention well think again Barbara also has views on why children need to know history so stay tuned. Your grandchildren will thank you. Barbara Mojica, welcome to the Boomer Woman's Podcast. Thank you very much, Agnes. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this so much. Let's jump right in. Why should we care about history? Oh, I could go on and on for a couple of hours. <laughs> on my website, I have a link to a, a post 14 reasons you should study history. But actually, I think there are a zillion reasons. Uh, first of all, you cannot name anything that does not have a history. Okay, history is not just something that has the beginning and the ending. It's more of an evolutionary process. So think about it. Uh, when a child is born, the child is born into a family. And that family has already existed. It's already been creating a history. So that child is already a part of that history. And as the child gets older, the child asks more and more questions. You know, who am I? Why do I do these things? What What is it all around me that has created this environment before I was here? And where am I going? And then the child starts to reach out and go beyond the family into the community and starts noticing things in the community. Well, why does that house look that way? 
who used to live in that house, who's living in that house now? Why is that person eating that kind of food? Why is that person dressed a certain way? So the child becomes aware of culture and traditions and customs and things like religion and societal norms. And then as the child becomes more and more aware, the child becomes aware of the wider world around us. So how is all of these things in our immediate surrounding related to those in the world around us? And how are they all interconnected? And that's part of history. So history is more about people than it is about dates and a series of unrelated facts, which is what, unfortunately, a lot of children see history as because that's the way it's presented in the curriculum or being interpreted by a particular teacher. Okay, oh, that's good. It's funny, a whole bunch of ideas just came to my mind there, but I'll, <laughs> I'll try to stay on, on focus. Let's talk about your history. You're a career educator. Have you always been an avid historian? I've always loved history. Uh, as a child, I loved school. So I loved reading. I loved finding out about people. I loved thinking about exotic places in the world that were out of my reach. I was born into a, a family uh, that didn't have a lot of means. We didn't have a car. Or we didn't have the ability to travel outside of my local environment. So in, in school, when I learned history and I read about the explorers and how they came from, from foreign lands and how they discovered all these new things, I kind of resolved that, oh, one day I was going to do that and I was going to become an explorer. And I did as an adult. The first thing I did when I got a job was to start traveling. So at this point, I've I've been to about 30 different countries and I, I've been to more than half the states. And, I, you know, I just love to experience uh, new paper people, new ways of thinking, uh, new customs, traditions, ideas. And that's what a historian really does. Uh, a historian may go back in time, but the historian's reason for going back in time isn't to get stuck in that time period. We have to know where we came from in order to understand how we got to where we are today. And then we can use that to create a kind of framework, a plan, a, a legacy as to how we can do better in the future. So that's uh, my view of history, but that's how, you know, I kind of saw things as a young child. And then when I went to high school, I had this dynamic history teacher who was just, oh, fantastic. She would jump and bounce around the room and she would become these characters in history and it became so alive and I I love this teacher and it turns out she saw something in me and uh, she told me she took me aside she said you know Barbara you have to go to college and I was in a high school that had uh, in dual tracks so there was one track which would prepare you for a kind of 
uh, business world and the other track would prepare you to go to college. And I was on the business track because, again, my family didn't have a lot of means. I wasn't anticipating the ability uh, to go to college right away. So she said, well, you can find a way because at that time I was living in New York City and there was available a public education system for college that was based on merit. So if you got the grades, uh, you would be accepted and there was no tuition or you just had to pay for your books and things. So that became my course of action. And uh, I switched tracks. <laughs> I uh, took the courses that I would need to minimally to at least get into college. And I did. I got my first choice. I, I got into this college. And from there, you know, it was game on. <laughs> so I I was so interested uh, that I kept taking extra courses uh, so that I would supplement my knowledge of history. So I took things like not just straight history courses. I would take the history of art. I would take anthropology. I would take uh other languages at the time I was most interested in ancient history so I took uh, a six-week course in the summer in Latin and I just pulled everything together uh, to get the most information I could and then another wonderful thing happened uh, one of the professors that I took courses with during the summer unknown to me put my name in for a scholarship for graduate school and I got a letter telling me that I had been awarded a scholarship which I nearly fell <laughs> off oh my, my chair goodness. and I was able to continue so that's how I was able to get uh, a master's degree in history before I was even 21 uh, years of age so you know my message to all kids is you can do anything you really set your mind to. And, you know, if you have a dream, go after it and, and don't let anything stop you. And uh, fortunately, there are people who uh, will help you along the way, even though, you know, things may not seem very likely to happen or probable to happen. Uh, anything can happen if you, you know, have that drive and, and determination. And I think so many kids today uh, don't have that. You know, they, they seem to be lost. You know, there is, they, they are bombarded with so many influences that they have difficulty finding a, a path, you know, to stay on that, that narrow path and, and keep going in the direction that they need to go on. Right. I, I think a whole bunch of people were thinking as you talked about your teacher, oh my goodness, if only more history teachers were like that. Uh, yes, it, I know. I, it, there are some that just will let, you know, almost read from the book and, you know, da, 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 da. and that can be so boring uh, and, and that in any subject. Yeah, uh, for sure. You know. But today, uh, teachers have so many constraints. I really 
don't put all the blame on the teachers for all the problems in the educational system. And here in the States, I, you know, having had a career of, of, of 40 years, you know, starting teaching at age 21, as I did, things have gotten worse and worse uh, because there are so many outside forces on the teachers now. You know, you have the politics, you have the the big teachers unions in, in many of the largest cities. You have the pressures of corporate interests who are developing all of these testing programs. And uh, all of these different groups have an ax to grind and uh, teachers are, are not today uh, given the ability to adjust their teaching to the needs of the students. And that's one of the reasons that in mid-career, uh, I switched. I was in general education and, and I was teaching children in the general population and I taught everything from grades K to seven. But I realized that so many kids had learning styles that were not being met in this kind of standardized curriculum. And uh, that's why I switched to special education. So I went back to school again. And, uh, you know, I, I went back to graduate school and I got certification in, in special education. And that led me on a whole new career path, working with children with special needs, you know, reading disabilities, uh, very, very uh, specialized needs like autism and uh, children that had genetic disabilities, children that had social emotional problems, drug addicted children. And on the very, on the opposite end of the spectrum, I, I worked with children who were uh, infancy and preschool. So, uh, you know, I, I learned a lot about uh, the way children learn and, and the fact that so many of our educational programs are not addressing the needs of kids the way they need to be addressed today so again like history you know i had to kind of go back in time and and, and start all over in order to uh find a way uh to get to a solution i think you've also just given us a little bonus aspect in this uh discussion today because so often if there is an issue in a learning or like a our child's ability to learn or something so often we blame the teacher so thank you for commenting on the fact that there's a lot of external forces that the general public even parents never see and you know teachers often can't speak out against it because their jobs become in jeopardy so so interesting to really understand that that's very true. And at the end of my career, I began to experience that more and more. Um, today, in at least here in the States, uh, the number of administrators has increased dramatically. So now you have more administrators in some cases than you do teachers in, in an educational system. And uh, that's a very bad combination. Uh, because uh, administrators are more concerned with the data uh, and, you know, achieving what 
outcome is 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 listed you know on the top of our goals and you know there has to be a very a very detailed structure of you know these are these are our goals and we're going to do this 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 and this to meet it and the kids really aren't included in that okay they want to meet their goal but are you educating children with this kind of skills that they're need, needing in today's society. And I think that what we've lost a lot of is the process of how to think. We are not so much concerned with teaching children how to think. We're telling them what to think. And that is not educating. That's you're again, you're just giving them a set of parameters to follow and that may or may not serve them well in in becoming uh, a future leader in in becoming a future good citizen because they're they're just being educated in the do this 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 not why do I do that how do I do that you know or which is a lot more important uh, then the fact the facts you're going to forget in a few years but the how to get that knowledge to be able to solve a problem and get along with other people and 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 have mutual discussions to be able to listen to be able to have respect for other people's opinions yet be able to demonstrate your own. I think a lot of that is being lost in this kind of, you know, test taking, you must meet the standard to develop the outcome kind of thinking that, that we have in education today. You're going exactly where my notes were leading us because you do talk in your notes, your PodMatch notes, um, about children becoming the leaders of tomorrow and being critical thinkers what's the correlation between history and critical thinking and tomorrow's leaders? Oh, well, a lot of correlations here because what when you study something in history, what's the first thing you have to do? Well, you can't just say, I'm going to study history. <laughs> you have to narrow it down. So you want to focus on a problem uh, whether it, you want to learn about a particular person, you want to learn about uh, a particular event or uh, a particular issue. So when you do that, you have to then gather information. So some historians talk about the four C's or the five C's or the six C's of history, but it breaks down to you have to look at the content of uh, the the information that's available and it's almost kind of like a science experiment so when you do a science experiment you have a hypothesis right so when when you study history you have something some person some event something that you want to find out about so that's kind of like the hypothesis and then you have to test information you got to gather the information and then test certain scenarios. So where do you go for information in history? 
you have to go first to the primary sources. So what's a primary source? A primary source is real information that comes from that person, that time period. So it's in the past, if you're going way back in history, it would be letters or diaries or journals or news newspapers. In more modern times, you have additional information like uh, the telegraph, the telephone, and uh, of course, in today's context, social media. But you have to be very careful to make sure that that's primary authenticated information. Because if you just look to the secondary sources, which is what somebody else either writes about, says, reports, that information is not nearly as reliable because that information is going to be infused with somebody else's opinion and secondhand knowledge. You, we all know the old telephone game, you know, you know how the message gets distorted as it's transported from one person to another. Well, that's what happens with secondary information. So you have all of this information and then you have to look also to see how it's connected with other things. So how is this information connected with other people of that time who may have influence or other events of that time, other things that were going on? So you have the connections, you have the whole kind of context of other things happening around that time. And then you take all of that together. So how is it communicated? What else was going on at that time? What other connections or events were influencing all of these things? So again, almost like a science experiment with all the variables, you know, testing one against the other. After you do all of that, you may come up with a conclusion and there may be one conclusion, but the information may be conflicting. So sometimes there could be more than one possibility, more than one conclusion, or maybe there's no conclusion at all. Maybe you can't come to a definite conclusion. So that's kind of like what a historian does, the, the process. And it's, uh, it's pretty much a similar process, no, you know, no matter what you're looking at. So that's critical thinking. Critical thinking is basically being able to take a problem, to focus on something, and then to test all of the primary sources against it and then gather all the connections, the, the context of what's going on around it, the influences, and then trying to assimilate all of that and come to some kind of conclusion. You have to be a critical thinker to do that. You, you have to be able uh, to ask how, why, when, who else, you know, it's basically the old who, what, when, where, and why questions. And you have to 
ask all of those in the context of critical thinking. So it's not just going to the internet, typing in the question, and oh, page one, here's the answer. That's what most of our children do. They want to find the answer to something, I'll Google it, I'll go to the internet. Do they go past page one? No. Well, when I investigate something, I'll go to page one, two, three, four, five to see all the information about it. What does the average person do? They want to get the answer. They want to get that answer instantaneously. So they're not going to spend an hour or two sifting through information. No. And this, again, that's a big problem with our modern education system. Got to be instant. Got to have, you know, we, we, we don't take the time to do the process. So what's going to happen with tomorrow's leaders? I mean, leadership involves critical thinking skills. If you're going to be a leader, you have to learn a lot about critical thinking. Not only do you have to learn the process of the who, what, when, where, and why, you have to learn what I call kind of creative thinking that goes along with critical thinking. So you have to learn skills like finishing a task. We were just talking about, you know, expecting the instant answer. Now, if a child doesn't learn that there, there has to be patience involved with investigating a problem, that child is not going to be good at finishing a task by finding alternate solutions and and thinking the problem through to solve it. A child has to learn the art of negotiation. You know, that we're not always going to get everything we want. And again, if a child goes through a process of critical thinking, then the child is better prepared to understand the give and take of communication. We have to listen to both sides. We're not always going to get our way. We have to learn that there has to be sometimes compromise. I mean, we should be uh, teaching children to be bold enough to communicate their opinions, yet to have respect and empathy for the other side of the question, to listen to both sides of the question. And uh, today, a lot of times with social media, we're being channeled into one particular way of thinking because what does the algorithm do? The algorithm keeps presenting us with the information that we react to and that we seem to agree to. So it will present us with people and opinions that we like to think about. And and if we don't click on it, well, then they're not going to show us that. So, you know, we're not going to be seeing the other side. Same thing with a lot of our news. We don't get unfiltered news. When we turn on the news, we're usually confronted with panels of um, people that are quote experts in their field and we listen to their expert opinion but many times similar to the social media 
the uh, news outlet will have in a a strong bias one in one direction or another. So we may only be getting one side of the story again. So there's a big problem with, you know, being bombarded with so much information. The problem is that we're not given a complete picture very often. We're, we're only giving given part of that information. So it's very difficult for children to learn those kinds of uh, leadership skills and be able to analyze and differentiate when they're only given one side of the story. So uh, and innately they're, you know, they're going to be biased one way or the other, uh, depending on the information that they're exposed to. And parents you know, have to make an effort, grandparents as well. And, you know, a lot of times grandparents are spending a lot of time with the children, uh, whether it be that parents are working or for whatever reason, the grandparents spend time with the children. And I, my experience, when I go to book events very often, it's the grandparent that's bringing the child to the event. And the grandparents are much more in tune with what's happening because they've experienced learning differently than the children today. So I think that they can play a good role in taking up some of the slack with, you know, parents who who may not even be aware of a lot of uh, the things that are missing in education today. A lot of parents are aware of it more now because during COVID they were able to see what their children were learning online and they become a, they became aware of what they liked and uh, maybe a lot of things that they didn't like about the way their kids were learning. And a lot of parents uh, and grandparents as well, because in a lot of cases, the grandparents are doing the research and taking the time to bring to the parents information that they may not have been aware of. They're be, you know, they're able to see these kind of gaps because in their experience, these things were important and they're seeing what's being left out today so grandparents can help children become aware of their heritage they can take children to local events they can have discussions with them about these kinds of topics and you know help develop a, a better awareness with, with the with the children as you went into the whole grandparent part of it I suddenly had this blinding thought of, because we have more history, we've got to be careful that our biases don't come to resemble page one of Google. So just because grandma mm -hmm. says it, it must be right. We've really got to remember to right. keep yes. that whole thing open. Definitely. But in, in so many families, children aren't really even aware of the basic history of 
of what went on before. Like, you know, they they just don't take the the time to have those discussions. Like, just having a a memory box. You know, I I have one article on my blog about this. You know, just collecting memories uh, in a family. You can and you can do that in so many simple ways. Um, having the child interview the grandparents. Now that may be a school assignment to do a family tree or something, but, you know, embellish on that, you know, just open up these kind of conversations. Oh, well, you know, when I was little, I used to do this, this, this. Oh, how, how is that different from the way you do it today? Or, you know, how were the ways I work different from the ways of working today, the kind of jobs. I mean, today, most kids are um, not starting work nearly as young as we did way back. I mean, I started working when I was 14 on Saturdays. I had a Saturday job, you know, as a stock clerk in a department store. Now, how many kids work every Saturday. I mean, there are children who are very ambitious and who like to find ways to earn money, but it's not structured. It's not something that's kind of ingrained in their thinking. They may say, oh, well, I want to save money to buy a new video game or something, and they'll think of a way to earn money to do that. But they're not thinking long term, like, you know, that kind of like work ethic like I need to be responsible I need to earn money I need to take care of myself it's you know it's a a different kind of mindset so I think we just need to open their minds to different experiences and uh, new possibilities you know developing their curiosity in areas that they might not have thought about before because I think the best thing to do, is, uh, my my philosophy is to learn something new every day. And uh, I think kids don't necessarily have that. They, oh, school, like, oh, when I come home from school, I don't even want to think about that. You know, I it's just so kind of segmented. It's like oh, each part of their life is like a, a different room in the house you know and they, and they don't they don't really mesh them and put them together and again that's what history is it's like taking so many different experiences and then putting them together and learning lessons from that i i, I think again in our education system we don't have that overall kind of world view perspective yeah, it's interesting just thinking of like the classroom where, you know, there might be an event that you can make exciting, but it often will remain just about the event. It won't be about what led to the event, the why were the outcomes, the outcomes they were, you know, who was involved, all that sort of thing. And and that's where, you know, maybe at home we can start doing some of that. Well, let's see, you're interested in that? Let's dig deeper. Let's look at uh, the other parts of the puzzle. Yeah, I think that's one of the most important things a parent can do or a grandparent in, in either case. If a child has an interest in anything, allowing them to pursue that passion, uh, 
whether you think the child is going to succeed or fail because so many parents and perhaps grandparents don't want to allow a child to fail you know we have these kind of helicopter parents that that want to protect the child against everything and children and adults learn a lot more from failures than they do from their successes so let the child fail I mean, you have a child that you know is klutzy and is probably not going to do well in baseball, but the child wants to try out for the baseball team. Pretty sure that this is not going to go well. Let them try out. You know, let them go. The child will realize, well, maybe this isn't for me. And then support the child, you know, oh, well, it didn't work out. So do you want to try something new, you know, and let them go on and try something new? You'd be surprised how many children have found, you know, a lifelong passion and even career by doing things like that. I mean, I I know with my own children, I let them both explore whatever. And with one of my children, it ran me completely ragged, like, I could go in and out of the driveway 10 times after work, but, you know, they learn, you know, they do something and then after a while don't want to pursue it anymore and let them try something else. So, you know, whether it's theater, whether it's sports, whether it's a musical instrument that helps them find their way and succeed eventually in in a path that that's going to take them through adulthood and maybe some of these issues are just outside interests but they're going to enrich their life and you know in in some other way so you know one of my big things is let them pursue any kind of curiosity any kind of passion that they have and eventually all those experiences are going to help them succeed in, in in an area that they want to follow but they're going to have some bumps along the way they're going to fail and it it's not always going to make them feel good but again that's part of life that they're going to have to learn to deal with if they're going to be uh an adult, a, a, a parent, a grandparent, a, a, a leader in their community, whatever the case might be, all of those kinds of experiences are necessary to their development. And, and I think parents, grandparents, any kind of caretakers, teachers uh, have, you know, have to play a part of that. That's just as much an important part of a child's history of a child's world experience as as learning the facts in the book you know meeting the math standard passing passing the test to me that's just incidental to the development of a child as a whole i'm glad you mentioned the whole part about failure because I've always been a strong believer that whether it's, you know, you mentioned sports, uh, perhaps it's a, an early job, so many experiences that you either find you're not good at, 
you don't like, you certainly don't want to do any more than you have to, like all that sort of stuff. That information is really important information to carry into your own future as well, you know, in terms of making what are the next choices that you'll make, you know, like revisit, not revisit, that sort of thing. And uh, yeah, and, and the fact that there, there will be disappointments up the road and you will live through them and you will move on and you'll find something different or another way or, or whatever. Uh, and I think we have in many ways taken that away from today's children. Definitely, definitely. I, I think we have so many, con I don't know if convenience is the correct word, but it's so much easier for children to do things. Not that it's necessarily better for their mental health, but it's it's easier for them to get through tasks than than it was for our age, for the baby boom generation, for instance. I mean, just think of the number of steps uh, we had to go through when we wanted to learn about something. Uh, it, it, you know, we, we had to go to find a book to get the information. So, you know, there was a trip to the library, getting the book, getting maybe getting several books depending on our age and the and the kind of problem we were pursuing then we had to get read to get the information we actually had to read through to get the information then we had to take notes so that we would remember this information then we had to take all of these notes and we had to go through them and we had to assess them and then put the information together somehow and then come to some kind of conclusion or evaluation of that information. That's a lot of steps. So what do they do today? They go to the internet, they type in the question and they get the answer. So again, that whole process of thinking, of researching, of analyzing, uh connecting things that's all that's all kind of lost and you know condensed into this very brief step so um i will add in there that how, how many baby boomers remember the status that their family had if they had encyclopedia britannica in oh the yes house. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was pretty but again, what is an encyclopedia? That's a secondary source. You yeah. know, that's yeah. somebody else who has taken this information and may or may not have some kind of filter or bias in, in putting this information together. Yeah. So in terms of determining sort of real events versus through someone else's lens, you've already mentioned like go beyond page one on google oh my goodness i can't tell you how many times i get people saying to me how did you find that i looked and looked and looked and i went no you didn't look beyond page one of google you know like i i am that person that goes on and on and on but besides that like or, or is that like an important part of it just because you know i'm sorry but google seems to be the go-to source these days yeah and of course 
or Google has a filter. Google, you know, it, it's really all the same people that own the Facebook and the Google and the YouTube because YouTube is a secondary engine of Google. And now, now Facebook is meta, whatever you want to call it. But again, it's, it's a group of people that some of which have a, a certain filter and then it doesn't really matter even that that's the only issue that they might have a certain filter. It's the fact that when you go to a particular search engine and you go back to it and repeat, eventually you're going to keep getting that information that's most popular. So what you see on page one is kind of a consensus of what Google and all of their outlets, whether that be the most popular YouTube, the most popular Meta, uh, you know, all whatever's the most popular or what somebody at the top has determined should be the most common outcome. That's what you're going to see on page one. So again, it's not unfiltered primary source information that you're getting. It's gone through all of these, this kind of process of, again, so what's popular? What what does the public want to see? What does the public want to hear most? And that has served to divide us into, you know, very, very segmented groups. And then what happens eventually? You get so locked into hearing only that group's side, that group's bias if you if you want to call it that sometimes it doesn't reach that level but sometimes it does and then eventually it gets reinforced 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 and you don't want to hear the other side anymore you know you you no longer have that open discussion well i think You've, you've mentioned social media. I don't think there's a social media outlet out there that when you click on something or whatever doesn't say, oh, you might be interested in this and, also. Right. Again, yeah. that, again, that's reinforcing it even exactly. more. Exactly. Even Netflix does it. I watch a movie on Netflix and the next time I tune in, oh, well, you know, based on that, you might be interested. You might be interested. And that's all they're collecting your information oh, absolutely. and yeah. uh, making a portfolio and then feeding you more of that. So it's just kind of segmenting, segmenting, segmenting. And a, a large part of that is marketing because they want you to buy certain products that are going to fit in with they, what they perceive as your bias. So, you know, that balloons into a whole other, other new. <laughs> yeah. And, and the more you follow those, uh, you know, I might be interested in this. 
you're just firming that up. You're just setting it in cement so that you forget that it's only an algorithm. It is not the real world. It's an yeah, it isn't the real world for sure. No, but what this this is it's becoming our real world because oh, yeah, so many people are dependent on social media, and the scary part is that our children are more dependent than any other generation. I mean, they, they're growing up with it. It's just, you know, ingrained. And, you know, the more you can keep children away uh, from it, the better. It's like almost impossible. But at least when you're having dinner, you know, you set the boundaries. No phones during dinner. No texting during dinner. We, If we're going out with a group of people, you don't sit at the table and text your friends or you know you just if you set at least minimal boundaries uh you will at least make some progress in having them understand you know there's there's a time for it and it shouldn't consume their lives well, just a, a little interesting or humorous aside is when my daughter and her partner first started living together and sort of sharing a computer and that sort of thing, they realized they couldn't shop for gifts for the other person because if the other person then went online, it's like, oh, well, that's interesting. That must be what I'm getting for my birthday or whatever exactly. because all the ads would come up. Yeah, yeah. Talk to me briefly about cultural history. We all have those cultural backgrounds we're very aware of other cultural histories and you know in terms of the global picture it is really important and now there's so many so much intermingling of different cultures uh, with varying degrees of success but even on a personal level why is it important to really know your cultural history well I think it's important because we want to kind of keep that individuality and uniqueness about ourselves at the same time developing empathy and compassion and understanding for other cultures. So I think it's important to teach children that certain values are important to your family from a very, very young age. So you expose the child to uh, the values and then you talk to them as to why it's important. Again, if you, if you help them to develop a, a knowledge of your family history you can help them to understand why it was important in the past and why it's important for you to continue. Now, that doesn't mean when your children get older, they may or may not accept all of these things. But I think it's important for them to understand, again, where they came from, how it influenced their their family, their great-great-grandparents, their grandparents, and how it has helped them as a family to get to where they are today. And again, it's not 
going to necessarily be the same for them. You can help them understand that cultures, like all history, evolve over time. And there may be things that were super important in the past that are no longer relevant today because of changing circumstances, change innovations, the uh, evolutions in the way things have uh, changed. Uh, I mean, we don't live in the same kind of houses because there have been evolutions in building. Uh, we don't wear the same kind of clothing necessarily because now we have synthetic clothing and in the past we didn't. I mean, our founding fathers here in America were wearing wool uh, in the middle of July, we certainly wouldn't be doing that today because things have changed and evolved. So, you know, you show them how those things were important and then you expose them to other customs and traditions. So I think it's really important to make children aware of why other people do things differently and why other people see things as uh, important to them. One thing I do in all of my books, my uh, because I write children's history, and I make them aware of other cultures and customs and traditions. And I tell them that at times mistakes were made in the way we reacted to those customs and traditions and acknowledge that there's a better way of doing things. So I always ask children questions. Do they agree with something? Do they disagree? Uh, I'll bring up issues like Native American rights or African Americans in the past, how they were treated and, and how they're treated now. And was it right? Was it wrong? Could we have handled it differently? So I try to teach children again to think critically. Not all of our history was positive, and certainly not all of our history was negative. Even if there was a negative outcome in the past, we might be able to use that negativity to develop a better solution for the future. So that's what I try to help them do. And that's what parents or grandparents can do. They can point out when a child says, well, that was wrong, or I, I don't think you were right when you did that. Uh, they can have a discussion, you know, listen to the child's opinion. And then sometimes you might have to say, oh, yeah, you're right. Or Maybe there was a better way. Maybe there is a better way to do things in the future. And we can talk about that. And, uh, you know, again, we learn from our history. That doesn't mean erase our history. That doesn't mean destroying what we did in the past. It means using mistakes as building blocks to understand ourselves better and to use those experiences to create better solutions for the future. Again, an ongoing evolutionary process. And our children and grandchildren are going to be 
carrying that into the future. So the more we can help them to think independently, to think critically, to think creatively, the more opportunity they'll have for developing solutions. Because we know that the world is going to be changing even more rapidly than it is today. And it's scary to think about how fast things might be changing in the future. But I think we have to give them the skills to to try to deal with that as you know as best that they can. Yeah. Interestingly, with my own cultural history, I grew up just being so proud of my British Empire history. And then you start to realize the reverberations from the colonization and all that sort of stuff. And and it's good to know the history. But you also have to learn from that history. And taking children, you know, a big part of my mission, too, is to encourage as many children as possible to go with their parents or grandparents to visit these historical sites where the history took place so they can actually see themselves there again that's a part of reinforcing cultural history and understanding better Uh, it's virtual reality is great I mean you can visit virtually but there is nothing like actually being there and experiencing when I research a place uh, for a, a book I go there and there's only very few exceptions like my North Pole book. I have not been to the North Pole, but I try to go to that site. I try to, uh, my illustrator, my husband and I, we take our own photographs and incorporate that in a mixed media way. So we would take the real photograph, we would take the illustrations, his artwork, which might involve drawing portraits of people or drawing pictures of documents that are connected with that event, taking all of that and putting it together for the child to experience and then encouraging them again to actually physically go and and experience that culture. So parents can can do that if they if they don't have a lot of money and they can't travel all over the country or all over the world to see these places you could take a child out into the local community and you know a great i you know give a child a camera give a child a notebook have them go look and and find places that they see are interesting and, and you know then do some research find out take a picture find out what used to happen in that old house or there's a waterfall over there. What did they use that waterfall for? You know, was that an old mill or was there a time when that water provided power for something and people didn't have electricity? Maybe they used that water to create some kind of power. You know, just getting them thinking uh, about what's around them. Because again, they don't take the time to notice uh, the everyday everyday 
things around you. Just walk around your neighborhood. Walk around and notice. Now, who are we as a community? What is our community doing? Take them. If there's a problem, another good example is um, pointing out and then getting them to look for problems in the community. You know, they go to the park and some of the swings are broken. Oh, that's a problem. How could we fix that? You know, if there's a, if you go to a community meeting, take the child with you. Let them listen in. What's going on in our community? You know, that's a problem. We need to fix it. Let let them listen to people discussing what needs to be done. Ask them, do they have any ideas? How could you fix that? You know, you don't like that? Can you think of an idea of how we could possibly fix that? And, uh, you know, just, um, again, immerse them becoming aware awareness is so important and again we've got so much going on around us today it's hard to see the the tree through the forest you know we got all of this stuff going on and we don't notice those little things and that's part of our culture you said something there that just took me back to my managerial days where I told everybody in my department they were welcome to disagree with anything I did but you can't just bitch. You got to come up with an alternate solution. <laughs> That's great, great idea. I mean, oh, okay. So your child complains about something at home. Say, so, okay, come up with a solution for that. Let me hear it. Yeah, yeah. I had a few solutions of my own. That's okay. I'm bored, Mom. Here's a toilet brush. <laughs> um, they soon found something to do. Okay, so so in so many ways, chatting with you, or chatting with me, is like you preaching to the choir. What haven't I asked you that you want people to think about, that you want grandparents of young children to think about? We've, we've touched on a lot of things. I know. Well, my character slogan is, if you don't know your history, you don't know what you're talking about. That goes without saying. But I would say encourage the child to be a lifelong learner. You know, I, I, I always say, if you learn something new every day, you'll learn to live better. All of these experiences will help you be a better person. So a child should be like a sponge. You know, I, I think an adult should be like a sponge, you know, always take in new ideas, new experiences and You'll be able to enrich your life no matter how old you are. Uh, there's always an opportunity to learn something new that will help you and that perhaps you'll be able to use to help somebody else, help somebody else in your family, in your community. Um, it's kind of, you know, sharing a, a kind of shared knowledge. So keep learning, keep living, and keep using those experiences to share with others. And I will remind the grandparents who are listening that it, it is a generational thing, and you can start setting the example yourself. Go out and start learning something new. It doesn't matter whether it's just how to grow roses or, you know, how to create a website like there's the sky's the limit in terms of what you can learn these days but it's setting that example that's so important definitely 
Before we close, you have a topic on your bio that I must admit I've never considered. What is each person's role and responsibility as a character in history? Ah, their role. Well, I think the role, it, again, is kind of related to what we talked about, to be the best you can be, to learn as much as you can, and to leave as much as you can behind, to take all of the experiences you have and to help other people use your knowledge to help others. So just imbuing that kind of philosophy that you never want to close somebody else off from learning. You don't want to tell other people your way is the highway, but you want to help them by you by using what you can share with them and a child, of course, using all of their shared knowledge as they grow older and older to help other people and use all of that kind of collective experience to make the future, to create a better legacy for the future. Uh, so it's kind of history as shared knowledge and using what, whatever shared knowledge of history, using that to understand where you are and then taking that to smooth out the bumps and to take the things that need improving and to improve them in the future. So if you give a child that kind of philosophy that we take all of that experience, each one of us is a part of history. History isn't just about the big names like Napoleon and Bismarck and King George, you know, it, it's about all of us. Every single one of us has a role to play. Our story is a part of history. It's a part of our family history. It'll become a part of our community history. Even though we may not make some big accomplishment, like, uh, you know, invent the steam engine or, you know, be one of the signers of a founding documents of our government or we don't need to make something that's earth-shakingly important but our story is a part of history we're all part of this global overall perspective of the human race so we are all characters in history and in order to be a character in history we have moved some somebody's moved into the future uh the longer it's, it's so interesting i just love talking to people the the more people i i talk to on podcast here the more i see some common threads and again there recently i spoke with uh, a gentleman who talked about stage fright and he said that before a certain performance one of his mentors came to him and said you're, you're not alone on stage. You've got me there with you. You've got my mentors there with you. You've got their mentors with you. And 
in the same way, whether it's me, my children, or my grandchildren, we have this collective history. And, and if we don't know it, we're really lacking. Whereas if we know it, the good, the bad, and the indifferent, we can then move into the future with a certain amount of confidence. And, and even if it's just the confidence to try to do things better or to try to create something that you can leave behind. You know, I often say the, the best thing I'm leaving behind is my three kids. Uh, so it's just, it's so important to think about the future and realize the importance of the past in creating that. Again, yes, it's all kind of one continuous thread. and We're all a part of it. It's irrelevant, again, you know, how others see us. It, it's that we should be taking the responsibility to play our part, to do the best we can to know, to understand, and then use that understanding to do better, whether it will be achieved in our lifetime or achieved in our children's lifetime or uh, achieved in their children's lifetime. It's still a, a continuous process and hopefully uh, a process uh, that overall will improve over time uh, using, again, you know, taking out the negative, using the positive and creating something better because we certainly don't want to pass on something that is worse. We want to pass on something that we have played a part in making a better situation for someone in the future, no matter how far in the future that may be. It may take a long time, but again, each of us has a very limited amount of time on earth, but we do have, I believe, a responsibility to do the best that we can with that time. So often when we talk about creating something, we think of something physical, but if we create just a mindset with fewer biases and more kindness and understanding and sort of a bigger worldview, that's probably more important than leaving right the physical, physical is just going to disappear with time but our ideas our mindset our philosophy can you know certainly be something that we can continue whether we're physically here or we're not yeah okay you have an alter ego and a book series Yes, uh, the book series I mentioned briefly before is Little Miss History Travels 2. I have 14 books and I have a trilogy book and a coloring book that embodies, again, some philosophy. I, I have some famous quotes in history along with portraits uh, in that that children can kind of color and put their creativity into. I do a lot of teaching uh, I 
you know, I try to share whatever resources I can to help parents and grandparents. So I have a teaching channel on YouTube. I have mini lessons for children. I have videos on a lot of the things we talked about, like facts and opinions and biases and uh, the teaching videos cover all subjects, not just history. I have resources. I have Pinterest boards, uh, collections of resources. Uh, and uh, I just try to help parents as much as I can. So on my website, if if uh, they just go to littlemisshistory.com, they can click on any of those resources. So whatever they need, whether it's individual coaching they can contact me through email or you know they just need some resources from a pinterest from video curriculum ideas whatever it is uh i'm always glad to share with them so you mentioned little miss history that is your alter ego i take it yes little miss history.com she's the character i use who she actually is a younger version of me and she takes them on the adventure. So what I try to do is to use the character kind of as an alter ego for the child who's kind of putting herself or himself into the adventure. And she's she is kind of they going on the adventure. And uh, she is a very funny, humorous cartoon character who's an you know, she's a cartoon version of a younger me and she's very optimistic and she wears rose colored glasses because she is positive and wants to leave the world better uh, than she found it. And, um, you know, that that uh, along with uh, all the other resources are on that website. So whatever they need, uh, they can contact me, whether it be, you know, for coaching, for resources. I have links to my blog, all of those things. If they just go to littlemisshistory.com, they can get anywhere from from that website. Well, please tell your husband that I, I love the picture of, I've got her on another monitor here, of Little Miss History. Because so often, like in graphic novels and things like that, we see this... Booby blonde shell of of a superhero, but she's just such a relatable person. She's just beautiful, and uh, I, I can't imagine anybody not relating to to her. I hope my arms out here because that's what she's doing. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I'm just going to mention that uh, when I browse through your books, I did not have time to go through all your social media. When I browse through your books, I noticed that I think most of them are American history. But I'm going to mention here that many books reverberate to an international audience. So like the Intrepid Sea, Air and Space yes. Museum, tons to learn there. Ellis Island is huge in terms of history. Um, Libria Tar Pits and Museum, probably lots to learn on a global. Oh, especially for amateur uh, archaeologists of the future, <laughs> you know, uh, that one. Uh, I, that one. Kids of all ages love. I, ha I have a fan who was four years old when he first fell in love with the La Brea Tarpots, and he actually was able to eventually go there. So he even sent me a picture <laughs> at oh, the Tarpots. Oh, isn't that funny? And the North um, Pole, of course, is international. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so you've just told us where to find you online, littlemisshistory.com. It looks like you are on just about every social media platform out there is that correct 
pretty much Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, Instagram. Yeah. I'm not on TikTok. That's uh, the good news right have, at the moment. <laughs> yes, I have issues with TikTok, but uh, yeah, I am on Instagram, on most you know social media platforms, uh, Twitter. So I, you know, I try to share a lot of these resources on my social media, my blog, I have all kinds of articles for parents and grandparents and collecting history and even for authors. So I share some of my experiences uh, along the bumpy way of, uh, you know, publishing and, uh, you know, pitfalls and things that that have happened and I've learned plus and minus on, on my author's journey as well. So, uh, yeah, I just, again, I try to share, uh, as much as I can, uh, to help people, uh, along the way, no matter what path they uh, might be following. So in terms of publishing children's books, give, give us one or two bumps in the road. Oh yeah, there were, well, um, you in publishing children's books today uh most people don't go the traditional publishing route because a traditional publisher there were only really three or four of them left they all have absorbed other co- companies and uh they want certain things so uh if you are not willing to follow you know whatever the theme of the time is they don't like to publish so uh we do in uh, i have a small publishing company which my husband owned because he developed a series of uh comic books way back and uh, he also worked on children's books but he published his own some of his own work so i we kind of have our own publishing company and we do all of the work ourselves except um the actual printing of the books but i have had to learn so much about marketing which is a whole other animal uh and you know so i share a lot of my experiences with that with marketing and and with certain prejudices that you encounter when you're starting out uh in publishing and you know just the kind of things that i've learned to do and not do and uh, sharing experiences like you know setting up book festivals and and doing interviews with other people and that kind of thing you know uh so it's been an interesting journey uh (laughs) and i share some of my resources that i've used uh you know along the way that's great um and i don't know if it's more about me right at the moment or or our listeners but i know i think so many grandparents myself included uh you know you've always thought about writing some children's books because we are the storytellers of the family and uh you know, and maybe that's part of sharing history as well, in terms it is, of our own family is. history. But yeah, writing is uh, writing a children's book isn't as easy as it sounds because no, it's sure at, well. In my case, I write nonfiction, so I have to do all the research in addition to visiting the sites and so on. But uh, even if you're writing fiction, uh, writing a children's book you have to refine everything so much that my on an average book i will go through at least a dozen rewrites because you have to filter all that information you've got to get down to the most 
the kernels of the information that you want to share. And then because I do picture books, the the pictures help explain a lot of what I'm not actually saying. But it's a very difficult editing process. So in writing, it's not just well, a little picture book. How hard can that be? You know, uh, most of my books are on the long end for a picture book. They're they're more like 36, 42 pages. But some people write pictures, picture books that are only 24 pages. Well, how long can, you know, it can't be that bad. It's a lot more difficult than it seems because uh, you don't just sit down and say, especially if you want to write a rhyming book. Well, you know, that's very difficult, too. So it, it's it's a it's not that easy. And then publishing, of course, uh, in most cases, uh, if you want to write a book, you're going to have to publish it yourself, which in, in some instances is easier today. But it's a learning curve. Even if you want to publish independently on your own, you have to learn how to work with the platform and how to input your information. And it's got to fit a certain way. And and then you have to learn keywords and you have to learn categories and you have to learn how to list your book. It, it's, a, it's a very uh, involved process so yeah I, I can back you up 100% there because I work with an author and she figured because I was the tech person I could help her with keywords and categories and oh my goodness I tell you I have put together spreadsheets and I'm sure still not sure I'm on top of it so uh yeah and then the other thought I had as I said something about you know documenting your family history is like well that, that's great to write a book for your, your own children or grandchildren but you have to make sure not everybody's a hero you know because we all have those scallywags in our in our past oh so sure being honest yeah. but being again honest. history's not perfect you know that no that's, that's what why. i know yeah yeah <laughs> oh that's great i really appreciate chatting with you listeners uh, the website link is in the podcast show notes. As always, all the links will be part of Barbara's bio on the website. If you have thoughts on today's show, please talk to us. Leave comments where you're listening. Or if you're listening at the Boomer Woman's podcast at boomwithabang.com, scroll to the bottom of the page and talk to us there. Leave stars and reviews where you can. They help us grow. For early access of upcoming episodes, there's a sign up under this conversation at Boom with a Bang. Why is it every time I say that, I point two fingers down? <laughs> um, share this episode with some friends. Share this episode with lots of friends. Your children and grandchildren need you to get the word out. Do not give in to the thoughts of history your high school education left you with. Barbara has explained so well why history is important and why our grandchildren can only excel with history as a part of their story. Barbara Mojica, thank you so much for being my guest today and making history exciting again. Oh, I've enjoyed our conversation immensely. Thanks so much. Have a great rest of the week. You as well.